beginning at verse 22 of Matthew chapter 12. As you uh, would surmise, I planned to preach this portion of Scripture last Sunday. Things didn't quite work out. <laughs> so here we are this Sunday to hear from the word of the living God. Matthew 12, beginning at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. The subject for these verses is the sin that God will not forgive. The title of this sermon is another way of referring to the unpardonable sin. Some people have been plagued by the question as to whether they are guilty of having committed this sin for which God will not forgive them. We get some help, I believe, from the theologian Louis Burkhoff, who wrote these words, quote, We may be reasonably sure that those who fear they have committed it and worry about this and desire the prayers of others for them have not committed it. This is a, a comfort for those who might think that they have committed this sin, the unpardonable sin. There is a school of thought that identifies the unpardonable sin as suicide. In fact, I've heard from a pulpit in the church I attended some years ago where the pastor seemingly confidently said that that is the only sin that God will not forgive. At that point, I knew he didn't really understand a lot of things, particularly the cross. He and others who make that statement do so without biblical authority. The implication of the act or the idea behind such a pronouncement of self-murder being the unpardonable sin is that it can, uh, one cannot ask for forgiveness after one has died. For an unbeliever, death by suicide or by a car accident, for that matter, doesn't really affect his, him in the least. They die unsaved. 
which is to die unforgiven, to die in one's sins. For genuine believers in Christ, they have been forgiven. At the moment of salvation, believers are justified by faith alone. Justified people's sins, past, present, and future are completely covered by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. What he accomplished on the cross is definitive. What Christ did on the cross in purchasing our salvation and redeeming us is definitive. It is eternal, and it cannot be changed. The Bible is quite clear about that for believers. In Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to look there with me, I want to show you something that the Scripture clearly says about Christ's work on the cross. Hebrews chapter 10, and we look at a couple of verses. Verse 10 of Hebrews 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. There are three words, once for all. Salvation, once for all. Run down to verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected, that is eternal salvation, for all time those who are sanctified. Eternal salvation. By his offering, Christ's offering, in contradistinction to the innumerable offerings that were offered by the Levitical priest in the Old Testament, here comes Christ is the one who makes the offering once for all. Now in chapter 9 of Hebrews, Chapter 12, verse 12, Hebrews 9, 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, speaking of Christ, he entered the holy place once for what? All. Having obtained what? Eternal redemption. Is eternal. Christ's work for us on the cross resulted in redemption that is eternal in character. So what this tells us, that justified people's standing before God is an eternal one. Our standard standing before God is one of righteousness. It will never be rescinded. You don't have to worry at the moment you die, oops, I forgot to confess that sin. You're going to die with some sin that you didn't confess. Did you not know that? Your salvation is not dependent upon how many, if you made sure you confess every sin you committed before you died. What if you die in your sleep? See, that's the ludicrousness of the notion that if you have not confessed a particular sin, that will bar you from heaven. No, if you're justified by faith alone, Christ has paid your penalty for ever past, present, and future sins, you don't have to worry if, oops, I forgot to confess that little thought I had. Besides, Scripture is quite clear about the security of the believer's salvation. And I take what Scripture says seriously. In the book of Romans, 
verse 34, beginning there, Romans 8, verse 34, the eighth chapter of Romans, Paul pins these words. He says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Christ won't condemn us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? That is, Christ's love for us is what that means. Who will do it? Well, Paul lists some potential candidates who are successful in their failure. Will tribulation, our distress, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, a peril, a sword, just as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That sounds like pretty much everything, and we are secure, right? Do understand the salvation that we have is a permanent one. God doesn't save people and then later change his mind. No, 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 no. He saves. We're saved forever. Nothing can cancel the believer's salvation. Every believer, once you're in Christ, you can never be separated from Christ. You're united to him by faith. Another thing about the unpardonable sin, the sin that God will not forgive relative to believers is this. No genuine Christian can f commit that sin. No person who's been born again can commit the unpardonable sin. It's impossible. And we'll see how that works out. We'll gain greater understanding of this reality as we watch this passage unfold as Jesus instructs us. And then also in the parallel passage, which also addresses it, we learn the nature of the unpardonable sin. The Lord Jesus Christ teaches us what it is. People speculate about it, and I'm not really interested in people's speculation. I want to know, what does Jesus say about it? He defines it. He tells us what it is, so there is no need to speculate. Now, you need to understand here in Matthew chapter 12, our Lord's teaching about this subject arose from his display of power and compassion toward a demonized man. And I need to let you know that Pharisees, you know, they're writing a scene. We've read it, and they are always, they were dogging our Lord's steps because they had made a commitment to be against him no matter what. And the, this, this miracle toward this demonized man showed again this fracture between our Lord and those who are his enemies. This exposition of divine power, ex exhibition of this divine power and authority was met with two different responses, a question and an accusation. And we'll see the, this unfold in the course of this study of these verses. We'll begin with the accusation. It's our first heading. 
And you know it in verse 22. This demon-possessed man was blind and mute. His blindness and muteness was caused by then-dwelling demon. Demons can take control of a human being and they can inflict physical maladies on a human being. They can make them sick, blind them, disable them from speaking or hearing or whatever the case may be. We have a good example of this in Luke chapter 13, verses 11 through 16. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to what it says. What I'm going to say here, there was a woman who had been bound by Satan for 18 years. Remember that? She was bent double. The lady could not straighten up. Scripture says um, her sickness was caused by a spirit, a supernatural spirit. A supernatural being, an evil spirit, had caused that woman to be bent double for 18 years. But Jesus comes along, and guess what he does? He undoes that situation. He exorcised the demon, and the lady was able to return to normal posture and walk in life. Here in this text, verse 22 of Matthew 12, Jesus healed this blind man and and this mute man, it was brought to him. It just simply says he healed him. Notice no fanfare. He just healed him. The mute man spoke and saw it. Interestingly, he didn't say he cast out the demon. I'm going to tell you why. Because what happened, apparently, is this. As soon as Jesus cast out the demon, the affliction left as well. The people were, in verse 23, amazed. Amazed. In the Greek, uh, it means to be beside oneself with astonishment. Another way to phrase it is, out of one's mind with amazement. They were out of their minds with awe at what they had witnessed. Think about this. You, you know this man is blind and mute and he's demonized, and Jesus comes and however he did it, the man was healed. They were out of their minds because the condition was completely beyond human help. No human being could do anything for the man. But Jesus instantly and totally healed this man. Christ's power caused men to wonder. The crowd. Notice verse 23, the B portion. This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, you need to understand something about this question that was asked by these onlookers, the public, the crowds. This, their question was neither a profession of faith nor an expression of doubt. They had not decided. They, they, they saw this prodigious miracle. They saw this amazing thing that they're out of their mind on. They said, whoa, can he be the son of David? Can he be Messiah? They were pondering that. Now you know the Pharisees are going to weigh in. They're the implacable enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so, oh, no, 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 no. We can't allow that to go unchallenged. Verse 24. Here's what they say. This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. 
Now, let me tell you one thing right off the bat here about the Pharisees. They could not deny that a miracle had taken place. They knew it had. The evidence was manifest. And many people had witnessed it. Rather, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub the ruler of the demons. They were saying that he was under the control of Beelzebul. They were saying the power of Beelzebul. In the parallel in Mark chapter 3 verse 22, they claimed that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul. They're saying that Jesus was possessed by Satan. It's a horrific thing to accuse Jesus of. say, who in the world is Beelzebub? The origin of the term Beelzebub may be from the Old Testament, Beelzebub. Beelzebub means the Lord of the Flies. It's a mocking take on Beelzebub, a pagan deity in 2 Kings 1, verses 2 and 3. And it means they're Lord of Dung. Jesus identifies Beelzebub as Satan in verse 26. If Satan cast out Satan. And Satan is indeed the ruler of the demons. Jesus identifies him. So they're saying, you're doing it by the power of Satan. So the Pharisees here flat out deny that Jesus was the son of David. They flat out deny that he is Messiah. The Pharisees said that Jesus was in league with Satan. The Pharisees were Antichrist. Not the Antichrist, but they were Antichrist. Let me show you this. They denied he was Messiah. First, First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. Verse 22. They weren't the first promulgators of a particular lie about Jesus. And it says here in First John chapter 2, verse 22, who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the what? Christ, the Messiah. Anybody who denies that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus who is revealed in the New Testament is not the Messiah, is a liar. This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. And who confesses the Son has the Father also. So when they say, no, Jesus is not Messiah, they've just said no uh, and demonstrated they are liars. Pharisees were liars. They were antichrist. They worked against Christ. They denied that he is the anointed one from God. And in this passage, by them doing that, this passage we're in, Matthew chapter 12, they sought to 
keep people from coming to Christ and the salvation he gives. Jesus says about them in Matthew 23, 13, that they weren't entering the kingdom and did not permit others to enter it either. Now here's an irony. They were accusing Christ of being in collusion with Satan when the fact of the matter, they were in collusion with Satan. They were doing the bidding of their spiritual father, John 8, 44. They were soul murderers. Their accusation was blasphemous. They blasphemed our Lord by his by their statement that he did this by the power of Beelzebub or Satan. That's the accusation. Here's the answer that Jesus provides. Verse 25. And knowing their thoughts, stop there. You may wonder, how is it that the text says Jesus knew their thoughts since... (laughs) They elaborated their thoughts by the things they said. It's deeper than a simple um, answer here. Let me give it to you this way. First of all, Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. No one can hide their thoughts from him. You can't hide your deepest thoughts from him. You, you, You can fool some people many times, but you can't fool Jesus any time. You keep that in mind. These words about the thoughts here stress that their opposition came from evil hearts. It's another thing we have to remember. The Bible is clear. It's declarative. It's definitive. The problem is wicked hearts. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 Jesus elaborates. He says this here, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hand does not defile the man. Jesus clarifying, it's not some external thing. It's internal. It's in you. The heart, the inner man, where there's spiritual and moral defilement. That's the problem. Hearts that were rebellious and evil and murderous. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew what was in them because he knows what's in all men. John chapter 2, verse 25. When the word of God convicts you, don't act like, no, it ain't me. Yeah, it is you. You ain't fooling the Lord. Amen. Just go on and confess your sins. Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew their hearts. And in verse 25, he says, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. This is as 
looking at his first argument, it, it shows the irrationality of any kingdom being against itself. Any kingdom against itself will make a waste, it'll lay waste, it'll self-destruct. How irrational is that? So to any city or house divided, internal conflict, division will cause collapse. No entity at all could stand if it's against itself. It's internally in conflict. It's working against itself. It won't stand. So Jesus lays that out before them, and they could grasp that concept, those concepts, and then he moves to the spiritual application in the spiritual realm. He makes the logical point here. Notice in verse 26, if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Satan were casting out his own agents or destroying his own works, then his kingdom would be hopelessly divided. Jesus is educating them on the irrationality of accusing him of working with Satan by casting out Satan. Do understand, Satan does not deploy his own agents or demons to fight against each other. It doesn't work that way. Jesus, applying his wisdom to help them to understand uh, the foolishness of their accusation against him. Satan's kingdom, Satan has a kingdom, you do know that. It's a kingdom of darkness. It's a domain of evil. And in this world, his kingdom is present. His kingdom is in the world system over which he rules, and he has demons that operate, and you see it in every sphere of society. There is no escaping Satan's kingdom, its influence, and its evil, and its wickedness, and its darkness in our world. That's why we see the nonsense we see in our world. You sometimes wonder, what's wrong with people? They're in the wrong kingdom. There is no endeavor of human being, human life, that human beings are engaged in who are unsaved, who are not influenced, um, directed, or energized, or impacted by the kingdom of Satan. Do get that. Bottom line. Fallen sinners in the Satan's kingdom. And so Satan has a kingdom and he wants it to stand. So he will, not, he will not work against himself. And Jesus is saying it's foolish to think that I'm working with him. In fact, uh, how ridiculous this is. Everything D Jesus did with respect to Satan and his demons was opposed to Satan's interest. He was opposed to Satan's kingdom. Healing the demonized mute blind man was one example of Jesus' opposition to Satan's kingdom. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says this, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. And the cross is the supreme and definitive example of Jesus' working to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the principalities. He made a public show of them by his death on the cross. They thought they were winning. In fact, they were losing. Jesus was winning. He 
achieved the victory by his death on the cross, his atoning death for our sins. Everything he did was to oppose Satan. The whole notion of satanic uh, Jesus collusion with him is ridiculous. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, Paul writes, or What harmony has Christ with Belial? None. Belial is an ancient name for Satan, by the way. There can be no two disparate persons in the universe than Christ and Satan. They're at cross-purposes with one another. Think about the difference between Christ and Satan. Christ is holy. Satan is evil. In fact, in the Scripture, Christ is called the Holy One. Satan is called the Evil One. Christ is perfectly holy, perfectly pure. Satan is completely, utterly evil. There can be no harmony between Christ and Satan. Jesus moves to a second argument in answering the Pharisees' ridiculous accusation. He says, If by Beelzebub, verse 27, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. When Jesus says, if by, assuming that he does for the sake of argument, that's what he's saying. He's not saying that he does. He said, let's just for argument's sake. And that's the case Well, your sons, i.e. disciples, your followers. By whom do they cast out demons? Now, you do understand the Pharisees would never claim that their followers attempted exorcisms by satanic power. They would say, never, never, never would that be the case. So they're inconsistent. How could they claim that Jesus did his work by Satan's power while maintaining that their followers did the same thing by God's power? Jesus, you notice, by posing this question, that's what he is saying to them. And he says at the bottom of the verse, verse 27, for this reason they will be your judges, their followers. What was implied here is Ask your followers by whom they cast out evil spirits. Go and ask them. Say, followers of us, come here. By whom do you cast out evil spirits? If they said, by Satan's power, they would condemn themselves. But if they said, by God's power, they would undermine the Pharisees' accusation against Jesus. They ain't going to ask their followers. third argument in our Lord's answer verse 28 but if I cast out again let me explain the the if Jesus is not stating doubt in the Greek text uh, this is a first class conditional statement it's saying assumes the reality Jesus said as a matter of fact, uh, I, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Jesus asserts that he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He said, I do this by the third person of the Trinity's power. Since I do, the kingdom of God has come upon you. His rule, his power, his authority. 
The messianic kingdom is in your midst. I am Messiah, and here I am with my power, and I'm demonstrating it by what I do in terms of defeating Satan's kingdom. I am the king. King. And if you need further understanding of this issue, let me put it to you simply. Let me put it on the bottom shelf for you. Verse 29. He uses an analogy. He says, or, to look at the matter another way. He uses this analogy to explain the exorcism, exorcism of a demon and that he is not in collusion with Satan. This is how he does it. You see that. How can anyone enter a the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. The strong man represents Satan and his property which consists of both the demonic forces and oppressed human beings under his control. Only someone stronger than Satan bind him, disperses agents, and liberate his captives from the kingdom of darkness. If you go to Satan's domain, you better be sure that you're stronger than him. And guess who is? And guess who went? He walked to Satan's domain and said, Here I am, I am the Lord. And Satan knew it. So he bound him and he freed the captives. In fact, that's what he did for us. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14. He is the one who liberated us from Satan's domain. We weren't strong enough to do it for ourselves. Jesus said, that one's mine. That one's mine. I will free them by salvation. And he liberated us from the captivity of Satan. And now we belong to Christ and God. So what Jesus is saying here, I go and I plunder the strong man's house because I'm stronger than the strong man. He has supernatural power, but my power is greater. I am the Lord. I am Messiah. I am the King. I'm going to tell you what this means. Elaborate. That Jesus wielded such power proved that he is God. Since God alone possesses absolute authority over everything. Satan is not sovereign. <laughs> He's God's devil. As Martin Luther said. And God can do with him whatever God wants to do. And it's not a thing Satan can do about it. Amen. We understand and we respect his power, but we know who we run to. We're strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Ephesians 6.10. The reason Flip Wilson said the devil made him do it. Because he belonged to him. <laughs> well, amen. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, let me go on now. <laughs> so that's the accusation. We've seen that. Jesus has given a rebuttal in his answer. Now, 
He moves to an admonition. Verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to the people in verse 23. Remember the bottom of verse 23? This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Remember, they were not saying we believe in Jesus, but we're not saying that we're against Jesus either. Jesus is speaking to those people. It's for their benefit. He is saying by this text, there is no neutrality when it comes to him. There is no middle ground. You can't be a fence sitter. You must decide for Jesus. For if you don't decide for him, you in effect have decided against him. Jesus telling to the crowd who heard him, you, you, you got to decide for me. If you don't, you're, you're with the Pharisees. In the matter of the identity as to who I am. The Pharisees said he is not Messiah. He's not the son of David. You've got to decide that he is because he is. And if you don't, you've decided against him. And that's the way it always has been. Either one is with Jesus by repentant faith in him or he's with the world in refusing to come to him by faith. It's either Jesus or one sin. You can't walk the middle ground. You're either with him or you scatter. To scatter doesn't necessarily mean you have to be actively opposed to Christ. You just don't join him. You scatter. That's our Lord's admonition. Now it gets to the anathema. My last point. The anathema, the curse. And what we've seen up to this point, we've seen this accusation against Jesus by the Pharisees as to the power by which he did the miracle of casting out demons. Now Jesus is going to zero in on it and clarify for us the profound danger of believing the wrong thing about him. Verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Let's stop there. God is a God who forgives. He says any sin will be forgiven people. Whatever it is, any sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Now let me explain something about forgiveness. First of all, all sins forgiven men, no matter what they are, of course, but forgiveness is predicated on one's confessing and repenting of his sins. God doesn't forgive willy-nilly. 
You have to acknowledge, yes, I've sinned against you. God, I'm a rebel against you. I'm a rebel against your son, the Lord Jesus, and I'm turning from that. God forgives the repentant sinner. He has mercy upon him. The exception is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is the unpardonable sin. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to speak evil of, to insult him, to defame him. Hebrews 10.29, rejecting Christ insults the Spirit who worked through him and testifies to him. When anyone says no to Christ and they persist in no, saying no to Christ, what they're doing, they're insulting the Holy Spirit who testifies to who Jesus Christ is. For the Pharisees, they attributed his work to the power of Satan. Mark 3, verse 30, they said Jesus had an unclean spirit, or that he was demon-possessed, doing his miracles by an indwelling demon, not the Holy Spirit, calling the Holy Spirit unclean. Are you talking about an evil heart? That is the depth, the greatest depth of wickedness. They said this despite the arguments of Jesus, despite the display of, of his power, despite all of the evidence to the contrary to their position, they persisted in saying, oh, no, no, he's demon-possessed. They persisted in blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Verse 32 one who speaks against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven him. So, whoa, 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 how does that work? Let me, let me explain. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the one sin God will not forgive, is more serious than the other sins. Because it reflected not just unbelief, but determined unbelief. Meaning that despite the evidence that Jesus did his miracles by the power of the Spirit, they refused to believe. That what they were saying was illogical and irrational to think that Jesus was in league with Satan, they refused to believe. That was their problem. Back in verse 32, the A portion. A person can speak against the Son of Man, and it shall be forgiven him. How is that? Son of Man designates the Lord's humanity in which he experienced in his time of humiliation and servitude. A person's perception may not allow him to see no more than the Lord's humanity. People can see Jesus, and they can see a man, and maybe they, I, I, I just can't... Mm, He's God. He's Messiah. Because of his humility, humiliation and all that that was involved in his serving, and you can miss that. In fact, here's a great example. On the cross, when Jesus was there, the two thieves on either side of him, remember that one of the thieves, he joined in with the other thief, and they were insulting Christ. Remember that? But the one repented. 
and believed. Jesus forgave him. Remember Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was an adamant opponent of Christ and the church of Christ, and he was seeking to get rid of Christianity and Christians, and he blasphemed. He was a blasphemer by his own words, 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. He said, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor. And Christ met him on the Damascus Road and did what? Saved him. But to speak against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven him. Again, let me say it. Resolute, determined unbelief against every evidence and argument is a permanent refusal to believe. When that person has come to that point in their life, there is no forgiveness for them in this age nor the age to come. Serious. The Gospel of John says this, John chapter 12, verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. Verse 39. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I healed them. In other words, God, when they refused to believe, he blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts so they could not believe. No forgiveness. They had reached a point where God said, that's it. You refuse to believe and only God knows when a person reaches that. He said, you don't, don't want to believe? You will not be able to believe. That's judicial blindness and hardening. A person comes to that point. And our text says, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age, human history, or in the age to come, eternity. It's an unforgivable sin. Here's the deal for you, for people today. If a person refuses the gospel of Christ, about Christ and the word of God, if they die in their sin, they will bear the punishment for that for all eternity. But while you're alive, conscience is bothering you. Spirit is convicting you. You know you need to give your life to Christ. Do it. Do it while you can. For Christ is indeed. He indeed is Messiah. He's the Savior, and he will save. You've been warned. Think about this. You, when you hear the gospel and you're called to salvation, you've been warned. We're all familiar with the uh, submersible that collapsed in the North Atlantic. We're all familiar that the CEO had been warned about that vessel by a number of people who were experts, warned and warned, and he ignored the warning. 
Well, when, when, that, that, when they went down and that vessel began to crack, and the pressure of the water, uh, as they'd warned him, would happen, at that moment he realized, oops, I, I was warned, but no, no. I, the report is he was arrogant. He had hubris. He said, no, 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 no. It'll work, and he didn't, and he realized oh, it's too late. Don't let that happen to you. Don't let that happen to you spiritually. There are people who've heard the gospel, and they've been warned and warned, and then they died, and they realized, oh, boy, I was warned. Don't let that happen to you. The gospel's true. If you're not a Christian, come to him while you can. Believe on him while you can. Turn to him in repentance while you can. Do it before the day is over, before it's too late. Do it while you can. Come to the Savior. If he's willing to forgive, but you need to come in repentance. And don't think, well, I'll wait. You might be like the people on the submersible. This might be your last trip. Come to Christ while you can. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we who are believers know that Jesus Christ did his work by the power of the Spirit. Thank you that we, uh, you opened our blinded eyes. We believe and receive him by faith and your children. I pray for those in this room who have yet to do that. Pray they'll turn away from their evil, their sin, and embrace the Savior. Thank you for uh, saints. I pray you continue to strengthen us in our resolve to live for your glory. Out of gratitude for what you've done for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray these things that you may be uh, honored you might be glorified. May we just rejoice, those of us who know you, in what you've done for our souls. Mm. Saved us from certain damnation. We belong to you forevermore. Attribute that to your sheer grace to us. May we serve you and love you and worship you with greater intensity because, Lord, You've done this, done so much for us. We glorify your name. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. You're here this morning, and we want to give you.